Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. The bill came due for John the Fearless last episode, and in this episode, his son Philip the Good becomes the new Duke of Burgundy. Philip worked to expand Burgundy's power, and he ruled during its height in a way that kept it strong and secure. But he also missed real opportunities to make it something more. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Comments or questions can be directed there, or send me an email at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 6, Episode 4. It's Burgundy Part 4, Philip the Good, and this is the Almost Forgotten. John the Fearless's only son, Philip, was born in Dijon, the capital of the Duchy of Burgundy, on July 31, 1396. His mother, Margaret of Bavaria, was the daughter of the Count of Holland and Zealand. Her brother, William, was the Count there at the time, closely allied with the Burgundians. In 1404, when his grandfather, Philip the Bold, died, his father, John, became the Duke of Burgundy. So the following year, the younger Philip was named Count of Charolais. He was married to Michelle of Valois, the granddaughter of the king, Charles the Mad, in 1409. Michelle was a year older. Neither of them, though, had yet turned 15. It was one of those marriages between Burgundy and the direct line Valois that was made to help keep the country tied together and to show Burgundian superiority over the other duchies. At the end of the following year, John sent his son to Ghent. Philip would now be his father's representative in Flanders while John was in Paris. He was, in essence, the lieutenant governor of Flanders, second only to John. This was no small thing. Flanders was important. Vaughan quotes a Spanish traveler from the 1430s writing about Bruges. Quote, it is said, that two cities compete with each other for commercial supremacy, Bruges in Flanders in the west and Venice in the east. It seems to me, however, and many agree with my opinion, that there is much more commercial activity in Bruges than in Venice. In the whole of the west, there is no other great mercantile center other than Bruges, and they say at times the number of ships sailing from the harbor of Bruges exceeds 700 a day, unquote. John seems to have stayed in Flanders for most of 1411, maybe spending significant time with Philip to teach him about governing, to let him see how he did things, and to prepare him for his semi-rule. John left in September 1411, and Philip was the man in Flanders. Philip spent the next few years managing the county. This not only made the Flemish happy, unless you're in open revolt, more attention from the ruling family is probably a good thing. It also allowed Philip to ingratiate himself with the people of Ghent and of Flanders for later when he was in charge. They would know him, know he knew their concerns, and would be less likely to turn to rioting or revolt when they had grievances. And he did spend much of that time defending Flemish commercial interests. 
When his father John was killed on the 10th of September, 1419, Philip was 23 years old. He was in Ghent with his wife Michelle. She was 24 herself, almost 25, and was a Valois, the granddaughter of the mad King Charles VI. She was, in fact, the daughter of the Dauphin Charles, and the young couple received the news with complete shock. It is said that Philip turned white and could barely breathe, while Michelle collapsed onto the floor. Wait a second. She was the daughter of the Dauphin Charles? Her father was the one who probably ordered John the Fearless's assassination. So that whole, uh, yeah, your dad's been murdered and your dad did it message probably wasn't the easiest thing to deliver. It took Philip a few days to recover from hearing the news. By the time he had inherited the duchy and all those other possessions, Philip was tall and handsome, a contrast to his father, and he looked elegant and refined. He looked the part of a leading prince of the realm and a chivalrous knight simultaneously. He was described as moderate in terms of temperament, self-controlled, and generally good-natured. Calmette writes that his nickname, Philip the Good, was not really what they called him at the time. Instead, he was Philip Lachure, Philip the Steady, and this was a direct reference to his personality. Steady as he was, like his father and grandfather, he liked the finer things in life. He liked his jewels, he liked to spend money on making himself look elegant and refined, and he liked to throw the most lavish parties. He was also lavish in his lifestyle. He had at least 30 mistresses and 17 officially recognized illegitimate children, that descriptor suggesting there may have been others. It was as if there was something that ran through the blood of the men of the House of Valois Burgundy that made them want to impress everyone by having the best tournaments, the most opulent banquets, almost like they wanted to show that even if they weren't technically kings themselves, they were clearly close enough in every way, including wealth, that they should basically be regarded as such. And Philip certainly had all that in spades. When Philip recovered from the shock of his father's murder, his first thought turned to revenge. He met with his council. In October, his family met in Mechelen, and then in Arras. They worked out the best path forward, and after careful deliberations, they came to one conclusion. They could not work with the Armagnacs, and the man in line to be the next French king was responsible for John's death. So, they should just follow John the Fearless's plan through, ally with the English, and let Henry V be the king of France. Europe is riddled with examples of kings from other countries being crowned, and England is certainly no exception. So this wouldn't end France as a nation. Its people would still be French. France would still exist. Henry wouldn't destroy the country by being king. But maybe, if things went just right, one of the Dukes of Burgundy could do it by creating a new nation of Burgundy. As Philip worked this angle, he took advantage of the fact that his father had convinced Queen Isabeau, as well as her husband, King Charles VI, to come to Troyes. So, while the Dauphin was in Paris, in 1420, orders were issued from Troyes in the name of Charles VI that nobody should listen to the prince. And there was genuine outrage among the Burgesses and other people of Paris at the murder of their champion, John the Fearless, which made life more difficult for the Dauphin. He ended up leaving Paris and setting up government in Bourges in central France, 
giving control of the capital back to Burgundy. But Philip was not to control Paris. Henry would, at least for a time. That's because this was soon followed up by the Treaty of Troyes, allying Burgundy and England, and this one was made public. In this treaty, an alliance was formed, and the avenue to make Henry king was that Isabeau disinherited her son, saying that Dauphin had committed crimes against the crown. And then, instead, when King Charles the Mad died, his crown would go to Henry V. Henry's claim was the very same claim that kicked off the Hundred Years' War. He was the great-great-grandson of Edward III, whose mother was the sister of the French king Charles IV, the last Capetian king. Because Charles IV had no male heirs, the French gave the crown to a cousin, starting the Valois dynasty, rather than giving it to Edward's mother, the king's sister. So, in 1337, Edward claimed it, and his descendants always did the same. Anyway, Henry's claim was legitimate enough, and as part of the treaty, he was betrothed to Catherine, one of Isabeau and Charles the Mad's daughters. So, their baby would be part Valois and part Lancastrian, which, well, each was like half Capetian, so maybe their kid would be like a full Capetian. Oh, and Henry would also get to be the regent of France until Charles VI died. There were lots of reasons that Philip took this course, but the route there was neither rash nor impulsive. The family held their council for a month, debating the pros and cons. They specifically tried to take the motive of revenge out of their argument. In the end, perhaps two things led them to make the treaty. First, the Dauphin was clearly a more dangerous enemy than they had thought, and he was set to inherit the throne. Second, sooner or later, somebody was going to ally with Henry. The Dauphin Charles had been in discussions with him as well, and whoever had to face that united front might be in big trouble. It's important to remember the context of this, which was not an alliance the way we'd think of it today. Vaughn writes that we shouldn't think of this as, quote, an Anglo-Burgundian alliance against France, for these were personal, not national in their scope. Individual princes, not systematic policies were involved, both in France and in Burgundy. Philip may have regarded the Dauphin as his personal enemy, but he never made all-out war with France, unquote. Philip, actually probably his mother Margaret, negotiated with the Duchess Regent of Bourbon to have a truce between those two duchies, meaning Burgundy's southwest border was safe. Regardless, Philip began working together with Henry, his brother-in-law, because, of course, Philip was married to Michelle, another one of Charles and Isabeau's daughters. They scored successes in battle together and pushed the Armagnac party back. At one point, though, Burgundy and Dijon were threatened. So Philip the Good went to his capital in February of 1422 to defend it. He was received with ovations, and as he hadn't been there since he became duke, he got people there to finally swear their allegiance to him. But when he tried to get them to do the same to Henry V, they balked. Eventually, his retainers did it, but wrote that they only did it at the duke's behest. Then, in July of 1422, his wife Michelle died. Despite this, he personally led troops into central France alongside Henry V in August to push back the Dauphin's army. But within just a few weeks, Henry fell ill. 
The King of England and erstwhile King of France died on August 31st, 1422. But he had an almost nine-month-old son with Catherine of Valois, and that boy was almost immediately crowned King of England. So the confusion and conflict in France did not just all of a sudden end. And while the Burgundians were contemplating what to do about all of this, Charles VI, Charles the Mad, also died. So, the baby, Henry VI, was crowned in Paris as King of France just a few months after being crowned King of England. The dual monarchy, as conceptualized, was in effect. What did you accomplish by the time you were 11 months old, you slackers? Of course, in order for the dual monarchy to work, Henry VI would need regents, because he was 11 months old. And the Dauphin, who is now calling himself Charles VII, would have to be defeated. But Philip was not necessarily inclined to support the English baby king. However, he was still loath to support Charles VII, who he first and foremost thought of as the murderer of his father. So when Charles's forces attacked Burgundy in 1423, Philip defended it and pushed the offensive back. But he also found he now had an excuse to not so actively help the English anymore. He had to defend Burgundy. It's so close to the false King Charles, he couldn't really spare another man to go fight near Paris. No, sir. By theoretically siding with the English, but actively doing little to help them, Calmet points out that Philip started essentially enacting not an English policy or a French policy, but rather a Burgundian one. Of course, I'd point out that his initial alliance with England, and the one his father had arranged, were also done more with Burgundy's interest in mind than that of England or anyone else. The problem that Philip didn't conceptualize, though, was that the English path was the Burgundian path, and without fully throwing himself into the alliance with them, he would never realize Burgundy's full potential. In 1424, Philip married Bonne of Artois, who was the widow of Philip the Good's uncle, John the Fearless's youngest brother, also named Philip. But she died less than a year later, and the Duke of Burgundy still had no legitimate children. Around that time, the northern parts of the larger state of Burgundy, that is, the Low Countries, were going through some turmoil. Feudal lords behaving badly, as it were. John IV, Anthony's son and Duke of Brabant, was ineffectual. He was a loyal Burgundian, but he essentially gave away his administration of Holland to John of Bavaria, who was a Burgundian ally. But his wife Jacqueline, the one who was the actual heir to Holland, ran off to England and married a duke there. Now the English leaders were loath to upset Philip as they needed him to stay on their side, or at least off of Charles VII's side. And John of Bavaria, who was childless, agreed to name Philip the Good as his heir in his Dutch territory. So while there were some dynastic worries in the 1420s, they were resolved thanks to Philip's diplomacy. Something at which, well, at least the first three dukes of this period of Burgundy excelled. Well, diplomacy and some well-armed troops. Duchess Jacqueline, John of Brabant's wife who had run off to England, wasn't as willing as the English to placate Philip. She returned to the Low Countries with whatever soldiers she could. Again, the crown of England wasn't about to help her, but there were always people who would go and fight. She and her new English duke husband captured Haino, but Philip got involved, especially once John of Bavaria died and the lands were now his. Philip began taking towns, 
and offered to duel the English duke one-on-one rather than see the bloodshed of war. He even practiced fighting for it. Philip's rival, however, soon fled. Without Jacqueline, actually. She was soon captured, then she escaped and tried to start an uprising in Holland. But Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Leiden, and other big cities up there wanted to stay under Philip. Life was good for the burghers in these burgeoning trading towns. Now many of the nobles up there sided with Jacqueline, but more people rallied behind the Duke of Gelders, a man named Arnold of Egmont, who was able to receive Philip's men at various Dutch cities with gates open and welcoming crowds. And if Philip's ally's name sounds familiar, well, he's not particularly important, but I mention him by name because Arnold of Egmont's brother was the great-grandfather of Lamoral, the Duke of Egmont, that ally of William the Silent who played such a prominent role in the early stages of the Dutch Revolt. Season 4! But there was still resistance. Jacqueline held northern Holland, even if Philip held Zealand and the south. So according to Calmette, quote, Between 1426 and 1428, Philip hardly ever left Holland. Fighting at the head of his troops, the chivalrous duke reaped all the glory of the arduous campaign, unquote. Wow. Anyway, the conflict continued in what was a real war for Burgundy and Philip. And then, in 1427, John IV, the weak Duke of Brabant, died. The estates of Brabant quickly named his younger brother, Philip of St. Paul, as the new duke. He was not so eager to do everything Duke Philip asked, but he seemed generally aligned, for the moment. Then finally, in 1428, after slowly losing a war of attrition, Jacqueline realized that no help was coming. She signed the Treaty of Delft, which allowed her to remain the Countess of Holland, Zeeland, Friesland, and Haino, but essentially acknowledged Philip as her regent and her heir. St. Paul, meanwhile, sought out an alliance with Anjou, working to marry that duke's daughter. This could have brought him into Charles VII's camp, but he died in 1430, before coming into full conflict with Burgundy. And since he had no sons and no surviving brothers, the Duchy of Brabant went over to his father Anthony's oldest nephew, who was Philip the Good. This was no small thing. Philip had actually rightfully inherited the Duchy of Brabant. Also in 1430, Philip married again, as his second wife, Bonne of Artois, had died. This time he married Isabella of Portugal, This was another attempt to tie Burgundy in England, believe it or not, because Isabella was the granddaughter of John of Gaunt, the founder of the House of Lancaster. As part of the wedding celebration, Philip founded a new order of chivalry, the Order of the Golden Fleece. It was to be the highest order of chivalry for Burgundian knights, initially limited to only 24 members. It became one of the most revered orders in Europe, thanks to the Habsburgs, and is still one of the highest honors for Austrian and Spanish nobility. But we'll talk about the Habsburgs and their involvement with Burgundy later. But while we're on a tangent, a quick comment on the continuing legacy of the Burgundian Duke's art patronage. Jan van Eyck, the master artist who had recently had some of his works restored, was a part of the Burgundian court. He had originally been employed by John of Bavaria, that Burgundian ally and Prince Bishop of Liege, whose butt John the Fearless had to come save, and eventual Count of Holland, Zealand, and Haino. After John of Bavaria's death, 
Philip brought Van Eyck to his court in Lille, where the artist became the court painter, a diplomat at times for Philip, and worked on the famous Ghent altarpiece. Back to Philip. In 1433, Jacqueline, the once rebellious Countess of Holland, Zeeland, Friesland, and Haino, decided to have a go at it one more time. She married a Burgundian lord, and the two attempted to wrest control of her territory back. They were defeated, and she was spared, but her title was not. In less than a decade, Philip had defeated rebellion in the Low Countries, and then consolidated his personal holdings there to become the rightful, that is, right by both inheritance and conquest, Duke of Brabant, Limburg, and Lothier, and Count of Artois, Flanders, Haino, Holland, and Zealand. Vaughan writes, quote, The incorporation of the counties of Holland, Zealand, and Haino, and the Duchy of Brabant, into the Burgundian state was the culmination of a gradual process. Nevertheless, the acquisition of these territories was of the utmost significance in the history of Burgundy. In mere size and material resources, Philip's state was increased by more than a third, unquote. We're not talking about familial alliances anymore. Burgundy now had direct rule over a large swath of territory in the region in between France and the Holy Roman Empire. It was a new Lotharingia being born, a relic from when Charlemagne's heirs divided his empire into three pieces, only to have the central one swallowed up by the other two in a generation. It moved the center of gravity of Burgundy away from the original duchy, away from France. John the Fearless was formidable and was a regent of France at various times, acting as a king. Philip was no king, but he may have been the most powerful man in Western Europe by the early 1430s. In his History of Belgium, Henry Piran writes, quote, If we consider that, confident in the support of his new subjects in the recently annexed regions, he had no rival to fear and had shaken off the suzerainty of the King of France, unquote. Piran goes on to note that he was able to act as an independent prince in the Low Countries, despite his imperial sovereign, and that, quote, we shall have no difficulty in understanding how great an influence he wielded. In less than 15 years, he had created a new state which included the most important towns and the wealthiest territories in the West, unquote. Perhaps because he was becoming so powerful, he became less and less interested in the English alliance. Maybe the years had mellowed his hatred towards Charles VII, and he certainly didn't feel backed into a corner anymore. Despite his Lancastrian wife and having his sister married to the Duke of Bedford, who was acting as regent in France for the young Henry VI, Philip stayed back from the conflict for the most part. He was opportunistic at times, taking a few French cities here and there. But there were also years of campaign where he gave little more than tactical support to Henry and Bedford. The ongoing civil war was not the worst thing for Philip. It precipitated a more independent Burgundy, and that was clearly what he wanted most. But by not participating, he lost the chance to truly weaken France to the point of giving Henry uncontested rule, which may well have resulted in true Burgundian independence. And then, it was too late, because in the late 1420s, Joan of Arc, a 16-year-old girl, began leading French troops to victory after victory against the English. That is, until May 1430, when she was captured by troops commanded by John of Luxembourg. John of Luxembourg was a Burgundian commander. 
he threw her in prison and told Philip, who came and saw this remarkable woman. Philip sent out letters telling everyone he had captured her and that she clearly wasn't divinely protected, stuff like that. He eventually sold his prisoner for a vast sum to Bedford and the dual monarchy, who used some French and some English clergy to convict her of being in league with the devil or whatever and burn the 17-year-old at the stake. Not Philip's best moment, although he was probably quite proud at the time, and he may well have believed she was literally doing the work of the devil. Who knows? But Joan of Arc had an influence on France after her death, as you could probably imagine by her continued fame. She had rallied and inspired the people, including some of Philip's own French troops, and King Charles's forces continued to push back the English and the Burgundians. We don't know exactly how Philip felt during this time, but in December of 1431, he skipped the 10-year-old Henry's coronation ceremony. This was done as a weak response to Charles VII's coronation ceremony of 1429, performed with Joan of Arc by his side. It wasn't much of a response, and the English were back on their heels in the Hundred Years' War. Now, many of the chroniclers of the time wrote that Philip felt to his core that he was French, despite his attempts to basically carve a state from its side, and that he began to feel patriotic again as well. Perhaps he was impressed with Charles enough to realize that France finally had a real king, and he wasn't going to stand in the way any longer. But there were other reasons. Philip saw the writing on the wall. He might have been the most powerful man in Western Europe, maybe, but Charles was on the rise, and Charles was securing alliances with the Holy Roman Empire and its constituent kingdoms and principalities. Charles wasn't far off from maybe even retaking Paris. Where would Philip be when that happened? He was more concerned with keeping his territory unified and intact. He further consolidated his Netherlands holdings, by creating a unified gold and silver currency for Flanders, Brabant, Holland, Zeeland, and Haino by 1434. But restoring Lotharingia wouldn't be worth much if he was caught in a vice between a kingdom where he was considered, as Calmet puts it, a traitorous vassal on one side, and that kingdom's powerful imperial ally on the other. And the empire was beginning to get difficult. Emperor Sigismund had been in a disagreement with Philip over Brabant. He had told Philip to stay out after Philip of St. Paul died. But Philip the Good went in and claimed the territory. Sigismund felt it was his to distribute. He had been powerless to do anything, so occupied as he was with a little thing called the Hussite War, season 5. But it was wrapped up by the early 1430s, so he declared war on Philip. Little good that it did, though, the emperor couldn't get any of the imperial princes to actually provide him an army. Still, Philip was surrounded by antagonists. He could have leaned in harder to his English alliance, but he had drifted toward neutrality and eventually began to send out feelers for negotiations with Charles VII. Philip and his advisors met with the king's chancellor in Nevers in February of 1435. There was a general sense of exhaustion at the 15-year-old civil war. Everyone seemed to want a reconciliation. Philip wanted justice for his father's murder. Charles wanted Burgundy back on his side. Negotiations culminated at the Congress of Arras in 1435. The French and the Burgundians were not the only attendees. 
there was a virtual who's who of Western European dignitaries at the shindig, including the English. It was not some secret treaty to kick them off the continent. Rather, it was a Congress to try to come to a full and lasting peace between the three parties. But France and Burgundy had already been talking, and they knew what they wanted and what each other wanted. Nicolas Roland, Philip's chancellor, was really a major driving force behind much of what he had been able to accomplish over the years and acted as his negotiator. On August 5, 1435, what Vaughan calls Europe's first real peace congress opened, but by the end of the month, the Lancastrians and the Valois had come to an impasse. The English, in a remarkably short-sighted move, left in early September, seeing no opportunity for a true peace. Philip stayed. So did Charles's men, and they went hard after Philip. They flattered and charmed him. They bribed his men, and within a few weeks, they hammered out a deal. The Treaty of Arras, signed in September, specified real concessions on both sides, and while some of them may seem theatrical and inconsequential today, in an age where honor was supposedly one of the driving forces of national policy, they were important. Charles officially denied any culpability in the murder of John the Fearless, and then denounced the act itself. This was important for Philip's honor. Philip was also exempt from paying any homage to Charles in his French territories. This was another honor thing, as Philip was still pretty sure Charles had arranged the murder of John, and it wouldn't exactly set up an independent Burgundy, as Philip's heirs would not inherit this exemption. But it was a large concession for Charles. Charles also gave territory to Philip as part of the negotiations, although some of the areas that were strategically important to the defense of Paris itself were sold back at a large price. This whole deal was very advantageous to Philip, but it gave Charles the only thing he wanted, Burgundian support for his title of King of France. The man we have been calling the most powerful in the region went from being his adversary to his supporter, and that was priceless to Charles. It was going to help end the Hundred Years' War. Who cares about whether or not he owned Boulogne-sur-Mer and Auxerre or some other town? These border towns are essentially going to be part of France now anyway, and officially so after Philip died. Philip and King Charles were happy with the outcomes, but they weren't exactly going to be pals from now on. It was the last time the two would meet face to face. And peace with France, who had been at war with England for a century, meant war with England for Burgundy once again. But this time, instead of being mostly territories in central France, Burgundy was that, plus almost the whole of the Netherlands. War with the English would happen there. Flanders would be sent into rebellion again. The English, of course, had an absolute fit after hearing the news. They prepared an attack on the Low Countries that Philip would have to defend. But Philip knew the time for something else had come, and he thought his efforts would be best used to help strike the hammer blow against King Henry VI the retaking of Paris. Thanks to his father John, Philip was immensely popular in the capital and he had many allies there. He sent soldiers to the region and he aided his men who were stoking a rebellion against the English within the city walls. On April 31, 1436, the crowds were able to open the gates for the French army and Charles retook Paris, according to a contemporary chronicler, thanks to Philip. But this would be the height of Franco-Burgundian relations. 
Charles would work to undermine Burgundy from that point on. Near the Low Countries, Philip tried to take the English stronghold of Calais, but was unsuccessful. And the English landed reinforcements and surged out, taking towns in West Flanders. Meanwhile, war with the English was not popular among the Flemish. Not that Philip had really wanted it. After Arras, he sent letters saying he still wanted to be friends with them. But the English were not ready to check the yes box on his note. At least not yet. Once again, pesky, rich Flemish towns rose in revolt. At one point, Philip was actually attacked trying to get into Bruges. Their main concern was only the total loss of their livelihoods via trade with the English. But the English, well, they soon realized they'd have problems of their own with trade. So, thankfully for Philip, before a more general revolt pried Flanders away, the English were back at the negotiating table. Isabella of Portugal, Philip's wife with Lancastrian ties, was able to kick off the rapprochement. Vaughn writes, quote, On the Burgundian side, negotiations seem to have been entirely entrusted to the Duchess Isabel, whose English connections and sympathies were well known, and whose diplomatic skill had been demonstrated at Arras, unquote. In late 1439, the two sides came to an agreement on trade, an agreement which lasted for about 25 years, which made everyone happy. This negotiation led to a discussion and an eventual signing of a formal truce agreement between Burgundy and England. They attempted to negotiate a peace between France and England, but this was not attained initially. A series of treaties followed over the next five years, including, thanks in large part to the efforts of Isabella, the return of Charles of Orléans, who had been imprisoned in England, in the luxury befitting a French prince, of course, since his capture at Agincourt in 1415. Charles of Orléans was of course the son of the man who was murdered by John the Fearless, but he and Philip became friends. Charles then married Philip's niece, so the dudes who had murdered princes of the blood and their sons all had been forgiven. Yay. More consequently, on May 29, 1444, England and France signed a truce. So nice work, Philip. Nice work, Isabella. Philip also around this time was able to add to his collection of territory by bringing Luxembourg fully into the Burgundian fold. His aunt, once married to his uncle Anthony of Brabant, later to John of Bavaria, had no children, and so Philip was set to receive it as inheritance. But she was up to some dodgy business up there in the mountains. She said she'd sell her rights to Philip, then she got mad at him and sold them to someone else in 1441, before Philip convinced her to name him as heir again. But since she sold the rights, Emperor Sigismund's heirs said no, they now held the rights. It's all really complicated, and thankfully Philip decided to make it very easy for us. That's because in 1443, he marched the Burgundian army in there. He did this after negotiating with Frederick III, the new Holy Roman Emperor after Sigismund's death, so as not to create a bigger war. There, William of Saxony, who was married to the daughter of the heir of Sigismund that was claiming it, led the opposing side. Philip took a few cities without a fight. He offered to fight William one-on-one, who declined, before finally defeating them in a larger battle in late November of 1443. Philip marched into the city of Luxembourg with his auntie, although there were still Saxon troops barricaded in the castle. 
Philip and William of Saxony negotiated an agreement in which William basically gave up his claim in exchange for that thing that everyone wants almost as badly as they wanted land. Cash. And so, Luxembourg was added to the Burgundian Netherlands. This all happened because Frederick III was a weak emperor who was desperate for powerful allies. So he went another step further. He offered Philip something that seemed to be exactly what he, and his father, if not his grandfather, had been aiming for the whole time, a crown. The Holy Roman Empire, remember, was made up not only of counties and duchies and principalities, but also of kingdoms like Bohemia. He suggested Friesland, which had once been a kingdom, or Brabant, which was among the most prestigious duchies of the empire, would make a fine place to name Philip king. Philip was really tempted, but he had bigger plans and he made his intentions known he sent word back to the emperor that he would much rather make a bigger kingdom out of all of his territories. He referenced the Treaty of Verdun, which had divided Charlemagne's empire and the kingdom of Lotharingia. If anyone doubted it before, they knew his intentions now. He wanted his crown to cover more than just Brabant. He wanted the Burgundian Netherlands to have the imperial seal of approval as a unified kingdom. But Frederick wanted nothing to do with this. It was too dangerous for him, both because he'd be creating too powerful of a vassal, but also because of how his other vassals would react to this news. So he flatly rebuffed him, and Philip received no crown. The question is, why didn't he just take the title of King of Brabant and, you know, incorporate his other holdings into a larger pseudo-kingdom? It may have been difficult in the politics of the empire to have a constituent kingdom also rule over neighboring dukedoms that weren't part of that kingdom. Maybe he would have had to give up other parts of his Burgundian state if he had agreed to this, and he'd end up with a better title but less real power. I'm not sure. All I know is he didn't end up as a king, and he and his family remained vassal lords subject to France and the Holy Roman Empire. Neither could tell him what to do in practice, but with the right combination of slip-ups and loss of power, they could take everything back from him, or maybe from his son. As it was, Philip maintained relationships with many lords of the empire. He was, after all, an imperial duke and count himself. We have focused mostly on the French relationship here, but as the Burgundian holdings in the empire grew, so did their contact with it. Philip built friendly relationships with other dukes and counts in order to preserve his own power within the Holy Roman Empire. One example was to the east of Luxembourg, beyond Trier, where the county of Nassau sat. Duke John of Nassau also had holdings in Holland and Zeeland. So Philip was very nice to John, and John was supportive of Philip. In fact, Count John and his son were constant allies of Burgundy. John was named the Seneschal of Brabant in 1436. They each acted as governor of Brabant and Limburg under Philip's son Charles, making the House of Nassau responsible for the government and defense of that part of the Netherlands, starting in 1471. John's great-grandson, William of Nassau, eventually inherited the Principality of Orange to the south of Burgundy, but it was his holdings in the Burgundian Netherlands that made him a knight of the Golden Fleece and eventually the leader of the Dutch Revolt. Anyway, back in France, Philip kind of stayed out of things. Charles VII used problems in Brittany as a reason to restart the Hundred Years' War 
and reconquered a bunch of territory from the English. Philip stuck to his policy of neutrality as negotiated in the truces. In 1453, the French decisively beat the English in Gascony in the southwest. Booting the English out of the region where their dreams of French rule were born effectively ended the war. Although there wasn't yet a final peace treaty signed, and Burgundy would still attempt to ally with them one more time before it was all over. Without much attention paid to France, Philip was focused on the Low Countries. In the 1450s, Flemish burghers once again rose up in rebellion, as they had done nearly 50 years earlier under his father John the Fearless. This time, it was just the city of Ghent, although Philip kind of started it. He visited Ghent in 1447 and proposed a tax on salt, which was rejected. This was embarrassing, so Philip negotiated for a few years trying to convince them that it would make sense for them to agree with their overlord's suggestion. It didn't work, though, and as he tried to remove malcontents from the city council, the guilds of the city organized a strike. They tried and executed a few of the duke's allies in Ghent. They sent out letters to try to get allies to work with them although the rest of Flanders stayed loyal. Then the Genters actually rose up in full rebellion and attacked nearby castles to try and gather supplies. They bombarded Udenarde, but that city was defended by loyal Flemish Burgundian forces led by Simon de la Lange. Simon's great-great-grandsons, Antoine and George, were players in the Dutch Revolt as well. Antoine de la Lange was the Count of Hoogstraten, who, on his way to meet the Duke of Alba, heard about Egmont and Horn's imprisonment and fled instead later fighting alongside William of Orange. George de la Lange was the Count of Renenburg, whose treason against William gave the city of Groningen to the Spanish. But that's a century later. Back in what was still part of the state of Burgundy in 1452, Philip declared war on Ghent. Udenardi held out, despite what Vaughn calls, quote, a systematic bombardment. At night, incendiary missiles were fired into the town, and de la Lange had to place tanks of water at the street corners, and organized fire-watching parties with the help of the women to watch where the missiles fell and put out the fires, unquote. They even shot notes into the city, claiming that they had reached the agreed-upon date where De La Lange had promised he'd give up the city in exchange for money. Nobody fell for it, I guess. It didn't take long, though, for the Burgundian army to coalesce in Flanders. John II, Count of Nevers, who, like Philip the Good, was a grandson of Philip the Bold, brought an army from Artois, or western Flanders, and was able to relieve Udenardi, breaking up the siege. In June, Philip had an army of 30,000 face off against some 13,000 rebels at the town of Basel. He defeated them and sent them fleeing back to Ghent. But in the rush, Philip's son Cornea was killed. Cornea was Philip's eldest son, and although he was illegitimate, he was a favorite of the duke and known as the Great Bastard of Burgundy because of the power and titles he wielded, and because that's an awesome name. Philip was devastated and furious. He had the rebels that were captured executed, and then he worked toward finishing off Ghent. He had to deal with a temporary truce, though, as the Genters appealed to their sovereign and his lord, King Charles VII. But while Charles would have loved to poke Philip in the eye, he knew better than to encourage a popular uprising against the nobility, and that other towns were paying close attention to the outcome. No deal was brokered, and the war continued. In 1453, Philip continued the fight and began to tighten the noose around Ghent. In July, 
Simon de la Lange's nephew, Jacques de la Lange, was killed by cannon fire. Jacques was a celebrity, known for his skills in tournaments. He was a knight errant who went around with his band of men trying to participate in combat tournaments. Besides in France and Burgundy, he had fought in places like Castile and Scotland, and he always won handily. He was considered the ultimate embodiment of chivalry, and his death by artillery is considered by some to be a mark of the move from medieval to the early modern world. It may be one mark, of course, but as we saw in the last episode with John the Fearless's failed crusade, chivalrous warfare was already dying, even if not everyone in France had yet realized it. A few days later, at Gavert, a fortified castle 12 miles outside of Ghent, Philip brought the Burgundian forces against the bulk of the rebel army. He fought in the thick of the battle, and he was wounded by a polearm, but he killed his attacker. It was a rout in the end, with significantly high losses for Ghent. The city submitted, and Philip was relatively merciful. He didn't want to destroy one of the jewels of his state. It was just worth too much. As a result of the war, though, he took away some of their privileges and solidified his control of the important and wealthy cities in the Low Countries. One side result of this revolt was the fall of Constantinople. Well, at least that's what Philip would like you to believe. He had been seriously considering a crusade of sorts to help beat back the Turks. But the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire fell in 1453. Philip was too late. Or right on time if you imagine that he probably would have just wasted blood and treasure without changing the results in the end. Despite definitely being too late, when Philip had finished dealing with Ghent, he decided he'd make a big trip east to kick out the Turk. By 1455, his court had several refugees from the Eastern Roman Empire. A knight from Trebizond, a doctor from Armenia, a bearded and earring-wearing ambassador from Georgia. The Turkish sultan was sending threats that he was about to conquer Rome and then come cut off Philip's head. It was all very exotic and exciting to them, with little thought of actual consequences. Philip at one point went into Germany, not with an army, just to drum up support, and he was greeted enthusiastically throughout the empire. But then again, in addition to being one of France's most powerful dukes, he was one of the empire's most powerful dukes, and counts and all the other titles. Anyway, lots of plans were made, but nothing came of it. At this point in his life, Philip was listening more and more to advice from the House of Croix, a Burgundian noble family that had rendered service to the House of Valois-Burgundy for a generation and were among the most powerful in the state. A few were even Knights of the Golden Fleece. But they did seem to have a pro-French as opposed to pro-Burgundian leaning. Those leanings didn't always conflict, but Philip gave up some towns he might not have otherwise done if not for their influence. Either way, Philip's son and successor Charles hated them, and the two had several arguments over changes that were pushed by the Croix family. Isabella sided with her son Charles, and by the late 1450s, she had decided it would be best for her to pursue a quiet, peaceful retirement. She set up in a castle in Flanders, rather than retire to a convent or anything like that, and she actually took in nobles who had perhaps angered the Croix family and were wary of reprisals from Philip. Speaking of taking in nobles, Philip housed Charles VII's son, Louis, who had fled the Dauphiné after marrying without the king's consent, and he was generally plotting his dad's overthrow. 
He said he wasn't hiding out, just helping his dear cousin Philip plan out the new crusade, and Philip refused to turn him over to the king. Philip was probably happy to do anything within his power to piss off the king, who he still mostly remembered as his father's murderer. All this happened as relations between France and Burgundy were breaking down again. King Charles was constantly making alliances with neighbors to try and check Philip's power. Meanwhile, Louis bided his time in Brabant, and two years later, King Charles became seriously ill. He lingered on, but finally, in 1461, he died. Vaughn writes that he had already given the order to begin war against Philip, but it was not carried out. Louis stayed in Burgundian territory until after his father's death, despite Charles's multiple invitations to return. Now, Louis was broke, essentially living as a royal refugee for the last five years. And yeah, he was about to be king, but he didn't have the checkbook yet. So, he marched to Reims for his coronation with a small group, while Philip made the journey, looking like the richest man in the world. And looking like the deliverer of the soon-to-be King Louis XI. This was also his opportunity to re-enter Paris for the first time in over two decades. He did so again with a display that was meant to show that he was the most powerful, or at least the richest, lord in all of France. He set himself up at the Hotel d'Artois, the home of the Dukes of Burgundy inside the capital, which his father had significantly expanded. The House of Valois Burgundy was still extremely popular in the capital. The people had not forgotten their champion, John the Fearless, and they showed love to his son, Philip the Good. He paraded around the city, threw a bunch of fancy balls, and generally acted like, finally, the Duke has come back to Paris, playing up the whole people's champ thing. Eventually, Philip backed away from the House of Cluy and reconciled with his son, Charles. Philip and his son began to agitate against the king once again, and in 1465, organized an alliance of sorts with some other high-ranking French nobles in an attempt to check the new king's power. But Philip wasn't heavily involved in this. It was pretty clear the end was near for him. Calmette wrote that as Philip was getting old, his mind was not exactly functioning perfectly anymore. However, Vaughan states that, quote, in spite of quite serious illnesses in 1465 and 1466, Philip the Good remained in full possession of his faculties until very shortly before his death, unquote. So it may have been that due to physical rather than mental health, that in late 1464 he named Charles, his son, the Lieutenant General of Burgundy, and essentially handed the state over to him. On June 15, 1464, in the Flemish city of Bruges, Philip the Good finally died. He was 70 years old and had ruled Burgundy for nearly 48 years. He had made Burgundy a more powerful state than when he had started, mostly through consolidating his family holdings in the Low Countries. When his father died and he inherited those titles, he only held Artois and Flanders in the region. By the time of his death, he was, besides the Duke of Burgundy and Count of Franche-Comte, the Duke of Brabant, Limburg, Lothier, and Luxembourg, and Count of Haino, Holland, and Zealand. This was a massive step in turning the Low Countries into a united entity, what would one day be called the 17 Provinces, or the United Provinces of the Netherlands. Calmet writes that, quote, He was, as the old historian Pontus Huterus said, even in 1584, 
the founder of the Low Countries, unquote. But he also probably had the best shot at making Burgundy into a long-lasting state, and he sort of passed up on it. By signing the Treaty of Arras, he played into Charles VII's hands. The Burgundians were set back on their heels against the English, and the French weren't going to help. Burgundy survived, but Charles was never going to look at it without hostility. If Philip had recognized this, his best move for Burgundy may well have been to solidify his alliance with the English and truly carve out his lands. Instead, he strengthened France, assisting its return to power on the European stage. Vaughan states as much and goes in even harder, writing, Quote, serious doubts arise as to the validity of the role in which generations of admirers have cast him. As founder of the Burgundian state, or great Duke of the West, the most important of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy. Philip the Good enjoyed a measure of success given to few rulers of his time, but, in spite of his early territorial success, he had done little to consolidate the dynasty's precarious power, unquote. He was, though, an effective ruler of Burgundy, if a bit strategically short-sighted. His conquests and consolidation in the Netherlands would live on well beyond his life and well beyond the Duchy of Burgundy. Next time, we'll take a look at the life of Philip's successor, his son, and last of the great Dukes of Burgundy, Charles the Bold. Thanks for listening.